Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch new episodes of Grey's Anatomy Thursdays at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. I'm Sterling Fox filling in for Roy Green. Today on the podcast, a new approach to organ donation with pollster Mario Canseco. CHML talk show host Scott Thompson joins us to talk about the ethics commissioner not appearing to tell us his story. Global reporter Abigail Beeman has a G7 update from France. And what is the number one voter concern this October? Global political reporter Keith Baldry has some thoughts from Victoria. This and much more on the Roy Green Show podcast. Enjoy. With a new survey from the folks at Research Company deals with organ donors. And the president of Research Company is Mario Canseco, who's on the line from Vancouver. So the story is, uh, it's about this business of presumed consent. Nova Scotia is the Canadian, only province in Canada that has, uh, in in terms of organ donors, uh, presumed consent. In other words, they've just passed this, and it's a unanimous uh, deal in the legislature, and it's being very slowly implemented. But the idea, and it's very popular in Europe, the idea is they assume you are an organ donor. If you don't want to be one, you can very easily indicate so and opt out. But if you don't opt out, you are considered to be an organ donor. And uh, this is very effective in Europe. Let me give you some examples. In uh, Austria, where this presumed consent is in effect, they have a 99% success delivery rate for organs. Next door in Germany, where they do not have this system, where they operate like we do in Canada, where you essentially volunteer to become an organ donor, their success rate is 12%. So a pretty dramatic indication from our European uh, friends that the system does work and there's lots of evidence. Interestingly, in Spain, where they also have this presumed consent, uh, it's it's accompanied by a long and involved education system to the point where uh, their success rate is also extremely high. They have the highest rate of successful organ donation on earth. So now, is it time for this to happen across Canada? Nova Scotia is at the tip of the spear. They say this is a success, and a large part of this success of the program involves education. People need to know how this thing works. So is the rest of the country ready to move in this direction? We know the Ford government in Ontario are having uh, they're having some kind of preliminary discussions about this. Other provinces in Canada not quite even at the table yet. So how do Canadians feel about all of this? Mario Canseco at research company got out there and asked many of us about our feelings on organ and tissue donations and uh, released a survey just a few days ago. Mario is with us now. Hello, welcome. Hi, Sterling. Great to be here. Mario, tell us a little bit, what was the motivation behind the survey in the first place? Well, I really was curious about this issue because we saw what happened in Nova Scotia in April when the legislature unanimously passed this idea to have uh, a change in the way organ donation happens in Nova Scotia, essentially moving it into an opt-out system. And what was fascinating to me is it's a legislature that is very divided. Uh, Obviously, there's a lot of liberals, there's some NDP members, there's some conservatives, and they all agreed. It was a unanimous vote saying that this is something that had to be done. And I thought it was a good opportunity to ask other people in other provinces if they think we should follow suit. And I was pleasantly surprised to see 63% of Canadians believing that their own province should be copying what Nova Scotia just did. Okay, and uh, was there uh, were there any parts of Canada, Mario, that were more or less enthusiastic about the notion, or are Canadians pretty united on this? Well, it is high all over. Uh, the lowest number is in Ontario at 57%, but it's still a, a majority of sure. residents. 
What was quite interesting to me is to see uh, Alberta, uh, B.C. and Quebec as the areas where there's the highest level of support for this idea at, at 66 percent. You know, we've had a lot of discussions about Quebec and, and uh, Western Canada being different. We've had a lot of discussions about uh, issues related to oil a, a production here in Western Canada and a lot of animosity between Alberta and British Columbia. But on this issue, we all agree that it's something that needs to be done. It's interesting because a few years ago in Canada, some of the cable companies tried a similar uh, presumed consent approach and the consumer backlash, Mario, was strict and severe and immediate and they, they changed their position pretty quickly. So it's interesting how we react so differently to a human issue rather than a commercial one. Well, I think part of the situation here is uh, there's a a higher level of of life expectancy now in Canada than we've ever had. Uh, There's definitely uh, a lot of uh, residents of Canada who have been touched by somebody who was on a waiting list or is on a waiting list. Uh, There's a sense of desperation. And, you know, even though we have a very good rate when it comes to actually finding organs for those who need them, we still go through hundreds of Canadians who die on a waiting list. And this is a way to stop this from happening and and essentially allow these families who are looking for something to have a much better chance to be in a situation like like, like the one that you just described uh, that uh, the uh, country of Austria has, Mm -hmm, where 99% of the eligible organs make it to somebody who's on a waiting list. Exactly. Now, uh, this the other uh, way of describing presumed consent is active donor registration, and that's uh, what it's called in some parts of the world. Uh, so uh, the Canadians, the majority of Canadians, probably, well, as I think two out of three, are either um, inclined or definitely interested in this uh, system. Yes, I think that there's been a little bit of a change in the way we look at, uh, at organ donation over the past few decades. I think there was a situation when because of sociological concerns, religious concerns sometimes, uh, it was seen as something that was quite taboo. Uh, now it's different. I think we have evolved in the way we look at something like this and, and the opportunity of somebody who has passed away allowing somebody else to continue to live because of, of the organs that are uh, still available. And, you know, it's, it's a very difficult situation when you face something like this after one of these tragedies happens, somebody who's young loses their lives. And, you know, there's always that discussion about what to do. And because of the lack of that consent, uh, there's all of this uh, intricacies to them. You know, some relatives might say, yes, he wanted his organs to be donated, while some others say, no, he never said anything like that. We don't have right. papers, we don't have anything. And then people suffer. Right. And with this system, uh, I don't know whether you know the answer to this or not, Mario, but when in Nova Scotia, for example, where presumed consent is fact, do the physicians still come to the family and and make the request even though they don't have to? I would assume as a courtesy, that practice probably still continues, right? That is what is happening right now, because even though the legislation was passed in April, it is going to be rolled out in the summer of 2020. So we still have a little bit of time for Nova Scotians to get used to this, to know about the the, the new reg, uh, rules that are going to be in place. I think it was a good idea for them to essentially have this uh, waiting period before this comes into effect uh, so that there's more information and there's no surprises once this happens. But if something like this were to happen now, you would continue to have the same conversation with the doctors. Well, and you know, that's a big part of it. I talk about Spain and other European countries. Education is a very critical key component to making this system work, Mary. And that's why, as you've just said, Nova Scotia is going through a gradual implementation program. And let's talk about why. Because in your survey about this active donor registration, some Canadians said no. How many and why? There's one in four Canadians who do not like this idea. I think part of the situation has to do with the fact that they want to be able to make that decision by themselves. Uh, there's always that situation where there's somebody who's really upset at the fact that the government is trying to infringe on the rights. Even sure. though there's an opportunity of, uh, for anybody who doesn't want to be part of the system to opt out. Uh, but for a policy that is fairly new, I thought it was a very eye-catching number to see 63% of uh, Canadians believing that this is the right course of action. Uh, I have tested our policies in the past at, at the nationwide level, and it's very hard for something that is fairly new uh, to hit 63%. So there's definitely an appetite, and I think it has a lot to do with specific stories that you may know, somebody who who you knew who was on a waiting list or who is on a waiting list, and you want to see something done uh, because we don't have that much time if you are somebody who requires an organ. 
That's right. And and so uh, the 25% of Canadians uh, who were opposed uh, combined with 13% who are undecided. And I think of that undecided group, Mario, it sounds like uh, a, a good, coherent education program might alleviate some of the concerns, at least of the undecided, right? Yes, I think this is definitely necessary. You know, we, we haven't discussed this at a level that is nationwide yet. We saw what yes. happened in Nova Scotia. There's discussions in Ontario, uh, but it hasn't really been embraced by any of the federal parties as something that has to be done. Uh, you look at other issues that have gained prominence lately, such as pharmacare for everybody. That mm-hmm. has been discussed at length, and you have a, a, a very tiny number of undecided because it's out there so much. So maybe in a year when we check this again, when we have an opportunity to look at the rollout in Nova Scotia, the numbers might be higher. Interesting, because uh, this is definitely a provincial matter, isn't it? This is something that each province is going to have to handle individually. Do the feds have a role in this at all? Well, this is one of those issues that's related to healthcare. So they could probably try to do some discussions about what they would like to see happening. But the funding comes from the federal government. The implementation and the decision on how to spend it uh, comes from the uh, the uh, governments of, of specific regions. I think this is uh, definitely one of the issues that is going to be uh, coming back into the federal election. There's always that discussion about healthcare, and the de facto answer from the federal politicians is deal with your provinces. So hopefully this is one where they can get together. Uh, Mario, did anything strike you when you and your team were doing this survey? And it's just a few weeks ago. Uh, anything interesting by way of comments? I know that some people, and they would probably be in the 25% who are saying no, uh, some people are suspicious of a system like this and are concerned about things, uh, 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 transplant surgeons uh, rushing to the end of life in order to accommodate urgent needs and, and such. And we had a chat with a fellow in Nova Scotia about this on Charles Adler tonight a couple of nights ago, Mario. Uh, and, you know, he said uh, that your doctor's job is to keep you alive for as long as possible. So the idea that, that uh, there would be some kind of conspiracy to shorten your life, just to, there's ethically, it's just not possible. Yeah, well, some of the comments that we received uh, during the survey, you know, we, we usually uh, allow uh, those who are taking the survey online to, to write anything about the questions that we asked. And, and it's, it's essentially a couple of camps. One of them is, you know, people who are sharing their own experiences and saying uh, how uh, difficult it was for them to go through this, this similar processes or they knew somebody who was affected by this and they thought it was a good idea and hopefully it can be implemented sooner rather than later. Uh, but we also have the other side of things, which is essentially this combination of uh, not really trusting the doctor to do the right thing if there's mm-hmm. an opportunity for somebody to be saved, uh, and also uh, a little bit of libertarianism. You know, th- this notion of I don't want the government doing anything with my body or anybody else's body uh, unless I am the one who says that I want to do this. So uh, there's definitely a lot of discussions that are going to be had. It's going to be fascinating to watch how this unfolds in Nova Scotia. Because of the political intricacies of the place, you know, you have people who are either staunchly conservative or staunchly liberal, a little bit of NDP as, as, uh, as well. So uh, if it works there, it'll be a very interesting uh, um, story that the rest of Canada could follow. And you've made that point earlier as well. The, the, the legislature in Nova Scotia is pretty typical Canadian uh, provincial parliament, isn't it? There's strong representation from all the players, and they generally spend most of their time disagreeing. But in this particular case, they were unanimous. That's well, unusual. It, it is unusual, especially for for legislatures of that size. You know, there's always going to be a scenario where uh, you'll find somebody who is going to be voting against something. Usually you have unanimous votes for things that are, uh, you know, fairly easy uh, not to be against, like, you know, giving a citizenship to somebody who's very important or, or, you know, establishing a day to celebrate uh, somebody who did something great for the province. Those are the kinds of votes that are unanimous. Something like this, which is a fundamental change in the way organ and tissue donations are uh, compiled in Nova Scotia is not a place where you expect something like this to happen, but they definitely understood what was at, at stake, sure. and they want to see some changes. 
Yeah, there's a provincial election underway right now in Manitoba, Mario. Where I believe it's a September 18th deadline. It's it's coming up very fast. They went Palliser went. That's right. Went for the shortest possible window when he dropped the writ for the provincial election. Not a lot of time, and clearly there are local issues of importance that they're going to scrap over. Might this, however, enter the conversation over the next few weeks in a province where something could be done as a result of an election? Well, I would sincerely hope so. I think it's important, uh, particularly within the context of uh, making sure that future generations can live longer, making sure that you have the opportunity to allow somebody who has been uh, affected by an illness to, to extend their lives. You know, I think nothing is more important for many Canadians uh, than family and making sure that you can find a way as a government to do everything you can to extend the lives of those who are affected by illnesses is definitely a win-win scenario. Well, and I was going to say, it's tough to, uh, you, you wouldn't want to make it a campaign issue in terms of something to fight about, but uh, a, a smart player in that uh, provincial game in Manitoba would note this uh, uh, point and perhaps include it uh, when they're talking about their health care delivery policies, for example. Well, it's a way to deal with one of the issues that always happens during provincial campaigns, which is waiting lists, waiting lists yes. for a bunch of different things. This would be a way to deal with something like this. And, and I think a lot of jurisdictions are waiting to see what happens in Nova Scotia. If this is successful, if there's a situation where you don't have people who are complaining, where you're able to look into the situation two years down the road and say, this is how many lives we saved, everybody else will follow suit. And you used a very Canadian expression there, Mario. There's another person listening to this program who isn't familiar with the notion of waiting lists. It's part of what we get with our healthcare system. So, again, as an election issue in any province, healthcare and waiting lists are indeed at play, aren't they? It is going to be one of the crucial issues in the Manitoba election. You know, it's a, it's a very difficult campaign uh, for the new Democrats. Webkino has only been leader for a couple of years. Right. Uh, but I think there are definitely ways in which you can change elections. You know, I, I always go back to the 2015 federal election. The first week of the campaign, we were talking about Prime Minister Mulcair, and he ended up being Prime Minister Trudeau. Yes, indeed. So, Mario, we've only got a few seconds left. I want to, first of all, thank you for taking the time on your weekend to do this with us. And it's an important conversation to have. And and as you pointed out, and we'll, we'll end on this note, the, the, the fact is the waiting lists are a reality, and we're still losing too many valuable Canadians for who are on transplant waiting lists who never get the call. That is one of the most difficult things uh, that are that is happening right now. The, the fact that uh, you know you, you you have a system that works for many people, but it, it 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 is not working for everybody, and it's one of the fundamental tenets of our healthcare system. Regardless of who you are, where you live, what you wear, you have to get the care you need. Mario, what's the website? Where can people find this online? It's at uh, researchco.ca. It's uh, the number two story this week, and uh, you can browse through all of the data tables, look at the demographics, and, and lots of other uh, cool findings that we have at the national, excellent, and the province-wide level. Thanks for this, Mario. Anytime, sir. Thank you. This whole business of the ethics commissioner and the overruling or the, the majority of the liberal members of the ethics committee in parliament uh, nullifying an appearance by the ethics commissioner who was quite willing to show up and answer any questions about his 63 page report on SNC Lavalin. As we've had time to digest this, you've done one of two things. You've either gone, okay, enough of this business, I've just tilt, it's over, or it's just kind of burning. And I have have a feeling our next guest is one of the latter group. He is Scott Thompson, who is the host of The Scott Thompson Show on CHML Radio in Hamilton. Scott, hi. Hey, Sterling. Great to be here. It's great to have you with us. And uh, are you uh, in Group B? Are you still seething? I am. Yeah, you know, again, th this whole thing started months ago, and it seemed, and I'm, sh I'm sure it was the same way for you, Sterling, every single day we had to talk about this for weeks because the story was constantly changing. And the Prime Minister could never get it straight. Yeah. If he would just get to the problem, solve the issue, let's get this out in the open, we could we could just all move on with this. Instead, I think the opposition is just going to drag this out while the Liberals try to, you know, push it under the table. Well, you know, they're doing their very best, but in the pre-election run-up, it's a classic Liberal move. The Cabinet is running around the country presenting oversized checks for mega-millions to local and provincial groups and organizations uh, for projects 
projects and and that sort of thing, making basically flying the flag uh, with the dollars attached to it. Uh, and that is, of course, an excellent di- distraction strategy, they hope. Is it going to work? I'm not sure. It certainly didn't work for uh, Kathleen Wynne here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think it's got to the point, and, and you know, I, I think this is less about the issues, the screw-ups, the, the things that have happened, and more how the Prime Minister has handled all of these things. And and again, I think going back to the beginning with the Jody Wilson-Raybould SNC-Lavalin scandal, this isn't what the Prime Minister sold. He sold a different way of doing things, you know, a, a more transparency, all that sort of thing. And yet now he's selling all of this as if he's 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 saving jobs for Canada, when really he's just trying to, to, to uh, obtain more votes in in Quebec. Uh, at the end of the day, he's he's running roughshod. His inability to, uh, uh, to to get a handle on this, I, I think his handling of all of these situations is, are probably bigger than than the actual problem itself. Okay, so let's talk about that handling because you don't have to live in Alberta to have guffawed loudly when he protested and, and proclaimed his innocence on the the end justifying the means. Scott, I was protecting Canadian jobs, nine thousand Canadian jobs. Not such a declaration when he shut down the oil industry for a couple of years in Alberta. No help, no grandstanding, no protecting. Well, no wonder the people in Alberta are feeling the way they are. My goodness, it's, it's amazing the you know the West just is, doesn't break off and do its own thing. And no, I'm not encouraging that by any means. Of course, but no, you know you're absolutely right. Uh, again, uh, I'm protecting Canadian jobs, even though it involves corruption, uh, charges of corruption and bribery. How, how do you square that circle? I mean, mm. again, this is not about saving jobs. It's about saving votes for him in Quebec. And again, he refuses to apologize for what he does yet takes us all on an apology tour and makes us all feel guilty for things our ancestors do while he can't sit down and and face us all and say he goofed here and apologize for actions uh, that he made in regard to Jody Wilson-Raybould. I don't know. I, I think the public is finally figuring this out. I think we need more than a front man for the country. I think so, too. And I, I think the, the most disturbing part of the report, and I wish, you know, it's like it's not like the Mueller report in America, where it was 400 and some pages. This is only 63, but it's still chewy as all get out, Scott. But if more and more Canadians take a time to even read a summary, let alone dive into the report, one of the most disturbing aspects of all of this is the way in which the government, holding hands with SNC-Lavalin, went about creating legislation specifically designed to uh, uh, write up a get-out-of-jail-free pass for SNC-Lavalin and slipped it into an omnibus bill without so much as a word about it. That whole process of lobbying and hand-holding and palsy-walsy behind-the-scenes stuff is enough to make you just lose your lunch. Absolutely. And again, the fact that these stories keep changing, that uh, that, that people keep flip-flopping on this, you know, at one time it was 9,000 jobs, then a, a CEO at SNC-Lavalin said, no, they didn't say that. I mean, it just keeps going back and forth and back and forth. They just keep digging themselves in deeper as opposed to just coming clean and moving on. And speaking of the Mueller report, uh, you know, at the end of the day, can you imagine if Robert Mueller was not allowed to testify? There'd be anarchy down there. Yet our ethics commissioner is not allowed to speak in front of the ethics committee, the people who told him to do what he did. It's bizarre. Well, at least in the States, when they have the ethics committee, I mean, the one partisan side who favors whoever the witness is, is kind to him or her. The other partisan side who is opposed to what the witness represents will just go after him with a knife and fork. But at least they they get heard and they get a chance to say their piece. And again, you go back to the last uh, ethics commissioner, uh, Mary Dawson, who uh, also reviewed uh, the prime minister in regard to the Aga Khan Island trip and ruled that he had broke uh, broke regulation there. The first time. Again, she she did a report she presented in front of the Ethics Committee. What's different here other than an election? You know, I had a chat with Peter Kent, uh, the conservative MP from Thornhill, former cabinet minister, about this the other day, because he and Lisa Raitt have been all over the tube complaining about this, uh, uh, you know, this maneuvering by the prime minister's office to have the liberal poodles on the committee vote against uh, hearing the commissioner and so on. And I but I put it to Peter that, you know, the polls over the summer, Scott, are not indicating the kind of, well, seething that you and I continue to experience 
votes on this, some of us, but not a majority. It's not as big a deal across the country as perhaps you and I think it should be. But the polls are just what they are. You know, you bring up a very valid point, Sterling, and I've had this comment, uh, had this question all week with guests that I've had on on my show as well, asking them the, the exact same thing. Does this story, does the ending of this story resonate as much as the beginning did? And, um, you know, at the end of the day, summer, timing, what have you, um, and the answer I'm getting is minds have already been made up. Uh, the minds have already been confirmed. Uh, in other words, before all of this started, way back when, the liberals were way out in front, still mm-hmm. enjoying honeymoon-type numbers. As soon as the SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould scandal broke, boom, down went the numbers, and they pretty much stayed there, e- even though the ethics commissioner has uh, has issued his report, and it looks like the two parties are pretty much neck and neck. So I think, that, and what I've been told, the damage is already done. This just merely confirms what everybody already knows. Yeah, it, should, it will come up, of course, if, if nowhere else. It'll be all over the campaign, but it will come up at a point during the debates. And I think if there are any undecided people or people who are going, you know, who cares about this stuff? They all do it. They're all crooked. But in the actual debate format, I think Elizabeth May is going to be a force to be reckoned with because she sets on the ethics committee and t- participated in the whole uh, exercise. And I think she's going to go right after the prime minister on this. Absolutely. Uh, I think from all sides. And it's going to be fascinating to see with the Greens and the NDP how that splits the vote on the left heading into the next federal election. But it'll be fascinating to see how the Trudeau camp, even with the same Gerald Butts at the helm, how they play this campaign compared to the first. Because the first was all sunny ways and, and lots of selfies. And this is turning out to be a lot more negative. And it's a lot different when you're the incumbent. I don't think he's going to be able to smile his way out of this one. Scott, just before we go to calls and Mike in Winnipeg, you're up first, sir. Please stand by. Scott, the only thing that uh, we didn't talk about in terms of the information available to us, the 63-page report by Mario Dion uh, was made despite the absence of nine other potential witnesses, including the clerk of the Privy Council, who were denied access to Mr. Dion by the Prime Minister's office. Well, again, Sterling, this is just more reason why we have to hear from the ethics commissioner, Mario Dion. Um, again, we heard from Gerald Butts. We heard from uh, the clerk of the Privy Council the first time. Uh, and then they both ended up, uh, well, Butts resigned and, and Warnick retired early. Yeah. And now, of course, Gerald Butts is back in the prime minister's office running his campaign. So, uh, again, the, these are people that got to say one side of, uh, of their testimony, and we were never allowed to question them, or, or no one else was allowed to question them. And again, these are all questions that would be clarified with a simple testimony from the Ethics Commissioner. And again, what I have a hard time squaring here is, how come the Ethics Commissioner cannot testify before the Ethics Committee? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, good point. Let's uh, let's see what Mike thinks about this. Uh, joining us from Winnipeg. Hi, Mike. Hi. Is this a big deal in, in, in your mind? This is a huge deal, and I'm really shocked that the Conservative has, has pushed this a lot more especially Andrew Scheer, a lot more yeah. in front. I mean, when you got the Prime Minister of Canada guilty of an indictable offense, according to the lawyer last week on Roy Green Show, I mean, where, where are the people for accountability here? Mm-hmm. And, okay. And now, Mr. Scheer, to, to be fair, Mr. Scheer did say guilty. He used the word that the ethics commissioner didn't. He said everything but. And Mr. Scheer sort of boiled it all down to that one word that the legal community leaped on immediately. He, Scheer used the word guilty. But he just, uh, I, I, my concern there, Mike, is, and I wonder whether you share it or not, is I don't believe him. I don't believe he's angry. I think he's just doing what he's paid to do. I oppose. It's my job. Yeah, yeah, I, I don't know. I, if I was in Andrew's serious position, I'd be taking this a lot more serious, and I'm really, really not surprised about Trudeau. All he happens is the arrogance of he's not even sorry. It is kind of breathtaking, isn't it, Mike? Thanks very much for your call. As we'll check in next with Robert in Hamilton just to see what, uh, what he thinks about this. Robert, good afternoon. How you doing, gentlemen? All right, thanks. What do you think? Well, I'm a union president, and I just came from this week a meeting with a number of people who were fired. And the one reason they were fired is because they lied. Now, they have a right to lie, to defend themselves, to make any prison. We're not arguing that point. But the company chose to fire them because they lied. 
So they're holding them to a standard. So the average worker, if they lie, not tell the truth, make up stories, etc., are held to accountability of firing them. They mm-hmm. lose their job. These are tier one automotive jobs. They are fired now right. because they didn't tell the truth. And we had every right to call up every witness that we can here. And now here's a situation where we have a prime minister convict, convicted, whatever phrase you want to read it, but he's wrong. Everybody knows it. He knows it. And two people lost their jobs over his lies. Mm-hmm. And how can you hold that person, and he can legitimately walk up to the average person on the street and tell me that you're a good guy? You're not. You're, you're, you're the problem in society. You yep. are the problem. Robert, good call. Thank you very much. Scott Thompson, uh, we are the employer in this case, based on what Robert was just saying with his recent experience with employees of a private company being fired for lying. In this instance, we are the employer, and this employee should be fired. Do you think it's going to happen? You know, that's, again, I I think I gave up trying to predict elections a long time ago, and I believe this one is going to be extremely hard to predict. I think what this comes down to, Sterling, is relating to the average Canadian. Uh, Not what we dream of being, not what we hope to be, and of course, that's all inspirational. But at the end of the day, this Prime Minister is not relating to the average Canadian. He's taking advantage of the situation. He's coming across as an elitist, but as a member of the middle class, I don't feel I'm getting much help, and I'm paying for all of this stuff. Uh, Again, I just think, like the Wynn government in Ontario, they have become out of touch with the average working Canadian. I think there are a lot of working Canadians that will agree with you. Let's get another call in before the next break, and that's uh, we're going to New Brunswick next. Daryl is on the line. Daryl, welcome to the program. Hey, how's it going? All right, thanks. What do you think about this SNC-Lavalin ethics commissioner business, Daryl? Uh, well, I got a military background, and so I guess I'm going to go with that as a, a, a teaching tool. Okay. Where when you instruct your troops and whatnot not to lie, be honest, and do the job, right? So now these troops can actually say, well, I felt it was right, so I did it anyway, and it was wrong. So, I mean, can you see, imagine you get some guy that's really mad at the system, and even if they're reviewing the troops, and then with Mr. Trudeau, then one of the guys decides to smoke him in the head, right? And then he gets charged, you know, whatever. Mm. And but he says, "Oh, it, it was the right thing to do." Can you can you see the message that he's sending to everybody across this country? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not trying to implant that, but uh, I'm just saying... No, no, no. no you're not encouraging Canadians to start taking a, taking a punch at the PM. The Lord knows there are more than a few who would like to. Nonetheless, it's just uncivilized behavior and not allowed, <laughs> Daryl. Well, it's, it's what we teach our kids is to be honest, right? Right. Uh, do the right thing. And he is sending such a different message. And, I mean, we have a problem with millennials now. Can you imagine how it, it could get worse if this kept on? Okay, good question. Daryl, I thank you for the call from New Brunswick. Scott, only a couple of minutes here, and I have a question for you. Even though you've just publicly declared you don't like predicting the outcome of elections, a lot of people are calling for a minority outcome, either liberal or conservatives. And if that is the case, my question doesn't deal with who's going to win the minority. The question is, who's going to be the kingmakers? It's assumed the NDP would be the third party. They've already indicated if we are, we're certainly not going to prop up the conservatives assuming that position for themselves already, I think, to the contrary, I think the Greens will be the deal-breakers after the next election and be that kingmaker-type party as they currently are in British Columbia. The Greens are going to steal a lot of Liberal votes. I think you've uh, hit the nail on the head there, Sterling. I I think they they have very much replaced, uh, in some parts of the country, the NDP as the third option, as the alternative, as anything but the above. Yeah. So it's going to be fascinating, as I mentioned early, how, earlier, how, how the left divides all of this. Uh, if we see a conservative minority and the balance of power is in the left, I think we know where that's going to go. So, um, you know, I, I'm not sure how much of a solution a minority government will be, but boy, will it be fascinating because there's it a, absolutely a few more will. cooks in the kitchen. Well, no kidding. And things tend to get done by minority governments because, well, the people, they have to be seen to be doing something. And so they 
cooperate, however grudgingly, and things actually do get done. Well, either that or they blow up. So I'm not sure how copacetic this relationship will be either way, but (laughs) it will be fascinating and, and lots of fodder for you and I. Absolutely. Scott, thanks for taking some time out of your weekend to jump in with us. It's great to speak to you, and I appreciate it very much. Sterling, thanks so much. Scott Thompson from CHML hosts the Scott Thompson Show from noon to three weekdays. Some people who probably not enjoying themselves a great deal, but nonetheless spending the weekend with sleeves rolled up and working, are the leaders of the G7 countries, including our own prime minister, who have gathered uh, under the auspices of this year's host, the French President Macron, in France, in Biarritz, by the seaside. And we'll go there now, and we're joined on the line by global news reporter Abigail Beeman at the G7 conference. Abigail, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. It's good to have you with us. Uh, Now, we have to add uh, a few hours to where we are here in Canada to uh, to get a sense of where you are in the day. What time is it where you are right now in France? So it's just after nine o'clock at night. And uh, right now the leaders are attending uh, dinner. In fact, the summit basically just kicked off this evening. They all uh, came together tonight and are now sitting down for dinner. Oh, okay. So I was under the mistaken impression that there were going to be some kind of, uh, there were bilateral meetings held by some of the leaders today, uh, but the actual uh, around the G7 table conversations don't formally begin until tomorrow, correct? That's exactly right. So a number of bilateral meetings, uh, the most important one for from Canada's perspective, uh, the Prime Minister sat down with two leaders today, the Japanese Prime Minister, and then the meeting a lot of eyes were focused on with the new uh, British Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. This was the first time that Trudeau and Johnson had a face-to-face since he became Prime Minister. Any substance uh, that were you able to gather from uh, the uh, the either the leaders or their uh, so uh, their uh, officials regarding the content of the discussion between Boris Johnson and Justin Trudeau? So we know that that conversation lasted 45 minutes. We know that it was wide-ranging, that a number of topics were discussed. Important to to note that this was their first face-to-face. So, you know, there's only uh, so deep or you can go into an issue on that, that first time that you're sitting down with somebody in a new role. But certainly top of the agenda for both these leaders and coming at it from slightly different perspectives is trade. So mm-hmm. uh, as you know, the UK is, is on the verge of Brexit. Uh, that has a lot of leaders nervous here at the summit in terms of what Boris Johnson plans to do, whether there is going to be some official exit deal, uh, a deal or, or no deal when uh, the UK leaves the EU at the end of October. And from Canada's perspective, uh, Canada wants to make sure that there's some sort of trade arrangement uh, for things going forward once uh, the UK leaves the EU. So for both leaders, they wanted to talk trade. Canada's been working for quite a while now, actually, to have some sort of a trade deal uh, with the UK going forward. Uh, It has not been finalized yet. There is talk of a possible bridging trade agreement, so that's Mm -hmm. something that may have come up between the leaders, uh, something to get them through for perhaps even a couple of years as as the uh, details of what the uh, post-Brexit future looks like. So trade certainly high on the agenda, and that's true for Trudeau on a number of fronts. I mentioned uh, his meeting with the Japanese Prime Minister as well, and that case, uh, more of a, a done deal, so to speak, talking about the CPTPP, the uh, Pacific Rim trade deal, which has been uh, fully implemented uh, in Japan. So that kind of a conversation. But trade is certainly uh, high on the agenda here. And I should note his uh, probably biggest one-on-one or bilateral meeting of the summit comes tomorrow. And that's when he sits down with the American president, where the new NAFTA or the Canada-U.S.-Mexico agreement will certainly be uh, top of mind. Interesting. Abigail, when you got there, one of the things that I'm sure you first discovered was that there isn't going to be a communique. Usually when the G7 gathers, their officials actually gather days and and start working weeks and months before, but they usually assemble a few days before the conference and identify a minimum number of items that they wish to at least have discussed and and come to some agreement on, and then they, they draft a communique, and at the end of the meeting, all the leaders sign it, and away you go. This time around, I guess based on the, the the last effort in Canada, Mr. Macron has decided there will be no communique. Were you surprised by that? 
So it's certainly interesting, and it has anybody who watches G7s closely uh, or uh, watches these type of meetings closely. That's what a lot of people are talking about. And in the uh, in in that community of experts and uh, uh, diplomats and advisors, there's there's some you know disagreement as to whether you really need to have a final communique to move forward in that way. Uh, Macron said, you know, he knows there's not going to be consensus on things. Climate change is a big one. Uh, he knows that not everybody, read Donald Trump, is going to see eye to eye and that, you know, there's that there's an idea that you shouldn't play to the lowest common denominator just for the sake of signing off on something. Mm-hmm. And that uh, talking about these ideas and figuring out ways to move forward can be beneficial without a final communique. Uh, but interesting to note that when we spoke with uh, Canadian government officials, they weren't so clear cut on the topic. They said, you know, we, we won't speak for other countries. Canada's goal at this type of event is always to have some form of consensus. So the Canadian side wouldn't even say for sure, you know, there's not going to be a communique. I've spoken to some people that say, well, you know, wait and see. These things always uh, get negotiated down to the last minute. But Mm -hmm. Macron seemed to suggest that that was, if nothing else, certainly not a priority for him. He thinks that there are other ways to to get things done and to to move forward. Of course, you mentioned it, what happened um, at the G7 that I covered in Canada last year, they had a communique, and, and we spoke with um, they, they call them Sherpas. That's the uh, yes. official name for the, uh, the, the the leader's personal representative who right. do a lot of that work that you were that you were mentioning, right? So we spoke with uh, last year's Sherpa to the G7 in Canada, is now a senator, and we spoke to uh, Peter Beam before we took off for this trip, uh, and he said, you know, it's, it's a myth that there wasn't an agreement in the room to the final communique. He said, you know, I was there and Trump agreed to it. I, I watched it happen. But as people may remember, it's what happened next after uh, the prime minister held a closing press conference. Trump had taken off early uh, for his uh, summit with the North Korean leader mm-hmm. and then unleashed that uh, string of nasty tweets calling Trudeau weak and dishonest. And then via Twitter, in our new age of Twitter diplomacy, backed out of this communique, uh, which uh, people say he had already previously uh, agreed to. But because of what happened, and that really was such a, a, a black mark on the entire G7, that's the type of thing that has led Macron to uh, make the statements that he's making. Interesting. Mr. Macron has also said that he wants to include a discussion on the Amazon rainforest as a part of an urgent discussion, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, most of the leaders would seem to be predisposed to accepting the notion. Uh, they're expecting perhaps some blowback from Trump. What do you know about modifying the agenda to include the Amazon? Well, yes, uh, Macron was pretty clear on Twitter that this is uh, top of the agenda. He called it an international crisis. The, the tweet that, that picked up um, speed on this, he said, our house is burning, literally. Mm-hmm. This is an international crisis. We need to deal with this. Um, Germany's Angela Merkel and Justin Trudeau came right, to his, came right to his defense and said, absolutely, we agree, we need action uh, for the Amazon. So uh, France sets the agenda, and uh, that is his plan to move to move forward. There is an entire uh, session devoted to oceans and climate change. Uh, that's not until Monday, but he, okay. he wants to talk about the Amazon first. Okay. Uh, Abigail, I'm grateful for this. Thank you. I look forward to an update from you uh, on the program tomorrow, uh, which should be perhaps uh, a more substantive day in terms of agenda items, because once they get down to business, they tend to move fairly swiftly, don't they? That's right. They have a limited amount of time with uh, these top leaders from around the globe. Absolutely. Well, thank you for this, Abigail, and we'll talk to you uh, tomorrow afternoon. Absolutely. Thank you. Our pleasure. Abigail Beeman, a reporter with Global News who specializes in G7. She covered the uh, Canadian version last year and is joining us today from Biarritz, France, and will do so again tomorrow with an update. They're having the dinner this evening, as uh, Abigail just pointed out, uh, and then we will get down to the real business of the issues on the agenda tomorrow, and Abigail will update uh, the situation by the end of the day. It'll be roughly the same time in the evening tomorrow when Abigail joins us from France. 
continue to focus on the uh, national election coming up in October and what's going to be front and center. We'll talk next with Keith Baldry, who is a global reporter, uh, provincial affairs reporter, uh, in joining us from British Columbia with a, a national look at uh, election matters, uh, including pipelines, the economy, all sorts of variables at play. Keith Baldry, welcome. Great to be here, Sterling. Good to have you with us, Keith. And if you don't mind, I'm going to open up the phone lines as as we continue, because I'd like to hear from some voters as well as you as to what the priorities should be. The politicians are going to determine for us what they think we want them to talk about, but that may not match up very well. So if you think you have a priority that is likely to be ignored or overlooked by the political players in this election uh, cycle, let us know what it is. Keith, what do you think uh, are going to be the, the front and center election issues come October? Well, I hope this doesn't sound like a cop-out, but I think it's pretty early yet to fig- be able to, to state um, with any finality or certainty what the key issues will be, what the proverbial ballot box uh, issue will be <coughs> for voters. Uh, campaigns matter. Things can happen in the campaign that nobody saw coming, uh, no matter how much planning is done, how much strategizing is done. Something can just pop up in the middle of the campaign and surprise people. Having said that, though, Sterling, I think it's safe to bet that there's going to be a lot of personalities at play here, and it, it sort of transcends issues, and that means... Um, I think a fairly nasty personal attacks coming from the parties on the top two leaders, Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer. Look for the Liberals to really go after Scheer, paint him as sort of an extremist with ties, uh, cementing his ties to Doug Ford in Ontario, mm-hmm. but linking him into to intolerance issues, anti-gay, anti-immigration. The Conservatives are going to respond, they've already been doing this, trying to turn the election campaign into a de facto referendum on Justin Trudeau's ethics and morality. Right. Uh, I think those are the two sort of uh, narrative threads that you can expect from both parties, as well as, you know, the proverbial pocketbook issues. Uh, Climate change seemed to be the hot-button issue a few months ago. Will it revive itself again? The SNC-Lavalin affair, of course, is tied to the Trudeau ethics question. It doesn't seem to have moved public opinion, though, according to the last four major polls post-ethics commissioner's report. But, you know, this is August, as you just mentioned. It's sort of the dying days of August and summer. And a lot of stuff right now is sort of being test-driven by the parties. It gets real starting in mid-September. And a lot of these issues that may not have really galvanized Canadians in the past, they come back in a campaign when the focus is on and people are paying attention. Sure. And and you're right. Uh, the unexpected is always the X factor in any political campaign. And there's still quite a number of weeks to go and anything could pop up. But, you know, with respect to climate change, Keith, um, the Liberals certainly want to make it a front and center issue. They want it to actually be the sort of the star of, of their uh, policy making and uh, future outlook for the country. And of course, with the terrible for- fires going on in the Amazon right now, talk about uh, coincidence in terms of promoting a particular policy platform. Uh, it, it's it's going the liberals, I would think, would take advantage of that. But back to your point about basically a slugfest, a personality contest between Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer. I don't what is your sense? You've been in this business a long time, and you've seen this stuff before, politically, uh, provincially, municipally, and especially federally, when they try and boil an election campaign to millions and millions of people who care to a personality contest between player A and player B. Voters don't have a lot of time or appetite for that, and I think this time around is particularly so. So how do you think voters are going to feel if both parties just try to turn this into a personality slugfest. Well, it, it may suppress the voter turnout. That's one thing that does come with negative campaigning, uh, and that can favor one side or the other. With the suppressed turnout, though, I think that would favor the Conservatives, who seem to have a pretty reliable uh, turnout from election to election. They don't seem to increase in numbers, but they don't really decrease in numbers either. It was the Liberals who had a big spike in turnout uh, in 2015. Definitely. The so-called Trudeau mania. Yep. That seems to have dissipated. So a lower turnout, which does result from negative 
negativity, I think, would favor the conservatives over the liberals. I hate to say this, but we've said this time and time again, negativity works in, in politics, in elections. Uh, the states is a, an extreme example of that, where you've got some really negative personal ads down there yeah. uh, in, in congressional races, Senate and the president. Uh, they're, they're a turnoff to people, but they do have a, sort of a less than subtle impact on voting habits, that if you're hit with a barrage of negativity about a particular candidate or leader, you're less likely to vote for that person. We also already saw yesterday a taste of this, Sterling, where the Liberals dropped a, I think about a 15-year-old video mm-hmm. of, of uh, Andrew Scheer right. uh, dismissing the, the notion that uh, gay marriage was, uh, was acceptable. Uh, the conservatives respond and say, come on, that was 15 years ago. People's, people's uh, views change, and certainly that's been the case on the liberal side as well. Uh, they've had people in their caucus who have expressed similar views. Yep. But the liberals have got it on tape, and they were able to drop it. And I think that video will surface again in the campaign. And this is another sort of phenomenon. It's, well, it's not longer a phenomenon. It's just part of politics now. Social media, things that are done on Facebook, things that are just out there, that people forget about five or ten years ago have come back to haunt politicians in the past. And you can be sure the parties right now are looking at all sorts of things that the leaders may have done or said 10 or 15 years ago to bring them back with a vengeance in, in the upcoming campaign. So you're No question about it, Keith. No, yeah, and we've, and actually, we've actually seen some candidates of all parties yep. forced to uh, step away oh, because yes, of yes. something that's resurfaced from their college days or yeah. whatever. Uh, that, uh, and that's happened across the spectrum. All parties have had people step aside because of misdemeanors from the past. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few more in this upcoming campaign have to step aside. I've got no evidence of that, but that does seem to occur from election to election. But I do think this campaign is going to really be one of the nastiest ones in memory. Uh, it's with both sides demonizing each other's leaders. And Jugmeet Singh of the NDP and Elizabeth May are not, and the Green Party are simply not going to get the same type of attention paid by the other parties. But it's going to be interesting between those two parties, which one of those two is going to be the third place finisher here and potentially the party that uh, has to decide which of the other two parties it props up if neither side can get a majority. Uh, you know, uh, minority governments are not won on election day. They're won post-election as talks begin between the parties to see who can command power and confidence in the House of Commons. So uh, the Greens and NDP may not be players here in terms of, you know, actually winning the election, but they can be uh, quite have a, a huge impact if they're one of the, the one of the parties that will decide which of the other two major parties gets to form government uh, through a minority situation. No question. Uh, we did open the phone lines for some voters' thoughts on all of this, Keith. And before we take the break, let's start with Michael in Toronto. Michael, what do you think? Uh, what's your concern going into this election? What's the priority for you? You know what I was going to say. I think it's the economy and affordability. Though the cost of everything has gone up from rent to groceries to gasoline. I can see it for myself and for my neighbors. A lot of people are really struggling, and what I'm finding is that none of the parties are offering any real solutions. And uh, they are, 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 I mean, they're talking climate change and other hot-button issues they figure you're going to respond to, but clearly the the concern, they're not addressing your concerns yet, Michael. That's correct. I mean, the only thing that I saw that was sort of of any interest was with the conservatives where they were talking um, about home heating and home energy bills right. and maybe eliminating the HST off of that. And I can see it because even I just got my last electricity bill and it was a hot summer here in Toronto. Yeah. Um, you know, my electricity bill went up quite a bit and I wasn't expecting it and I kept my air conditioning down low and yet still it had a huge impact on my bill. And just if they can eliminate the tax, that would help quite a bit. Interesting stuff. Michael, thanks very much for your call. You know, the back to that Clinton-era phrase, Keith Baldry, it's the economy, stupid. Yeah, no, and the economy usually trumps other issues uh, come in election campaign. It's interesting, Michael, there's a point about affordability. As you know, Sterling, you and I talked about this in the 2017 election campaign out here in British Columbia. Affordability was an issue that the NDP at the time really played up and ran on and promised, right. you know, to make life more affordable. And that really spoke to voters, in particularly in the suburbs of Metro Vancouver, and an issue like that will speak, presumably, to, to key places like where he's calling from, the suburbs or, or part of greater uh, Toronto, where there's so many ridings and where affordability issues uh, count for so much in, in people's daily lives, which is, again, why you're going to see Trudeau and Shear in particular 
talk about a lot of pocketbook issues. It's going to be interesting to see how Trudeau's plan for a carbon tax, which is already in place in a number of provinces, is going to play out over a campaign, and whether Andrew Scheer uses that as one of his countermeasures, that he becomes the uh, uh, anti-carbon tax uh, party and plays up the Conservatives' record for cutting taxes rather than raising them. That may be a turning point in the campaign as well. We go to Calgary. Jim is on the line to speak to me and Keith Baldry, who joins us from Victoria from Global News. Jim, good afternoon. Long, long time no talk, Sterling. Good to have you with us. What's the priority this time, Jim? The pipeline, my son. Okay. The Americans are waking up slowly but surely, but they're waking up. They've uh, Nebraska passed passed the deal. In Nebraska, says the pipeline can now continue through Nebraska as of the day before yesterday. Uh, if they want, if Alberta and Canada really wants a pipeline, they should talk to the fellow from Eagle Spirit. He's got a great idea, and we can bypass British Columbia in his idea if they if they want to keep protesting. And his idea was to go north from Edmonton through the Northwest Territories, into the Yukon, and into Alaska. Jim, I, I appreciate it. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I want to get Keith on this one, too, because, Keith, the pipeline is clearly going to be an issue, whether whether we take uh, Jim's uh, solution, which is pretty expensive-sounding, or we deal with the reality that's at our foot. We, you and I, and everybody listening to this program, are owners of a pipeline, like it or not. And the, uh, the energy minister, Mr. Soji, made a big deal the other day about shovels in the ground, a very theatrical announcement of the resumption of construction of the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, all very nicely timed for the 6 o'clock news, Keith. How far along do you expect things to be in a few weeks when the election's on? Oh, I think you already were seeing, uh, actually Trans Mountain uh, sent out on social media pictures and footage of work already being done right. on the pipeline at the terminus in Burnaby. That's where construction is going to begin within 30 days uh, at the Burnaby Terminal, where the pipeline has its terminus, at the Westridge Marine Terminal, which is where the oil is loaded onto tankers. Those are both in Burnaby and also along the line between Edmonton and Edson in Alberta. So mm-hmm. the shovels in the ground will be there, along with, I assume, some pretty... Uh, big protests, particularly in Burnaby, where the, ter- the terminus uh, is, where we've had protests before, um, a massive amount of civil disobedience. That's going to be on the 6 o'clock news in the campaign. I don't think uh, Justin Trudeau or Andrew Scheer worry about that too much. Uh, they've got uh, the, the ridings that Trudeau won that are around the tanker route. He won, his candidates won with massive majorities. We're talking more than 15,000 votes over their conservative or NDP candidate. So I don't think that particular issue, while it's going to get a lot of attention in the media, is necessarily going to be a big issue in the campaign, with the exception of a couple of ridings in British Columbia down in Metro Vancouver. Certainly in Alberta, that's, you know, conservative uh, ground zero. They're not going to lose any seats there. And the Liberals aren't going to win any seats there because of the pipeline. So it's going to be a theatrical issue, Sterling, but I don't see it necessarily moving a lot of voters one way or another. All right. Adam in Toronto uh, joining the program now. Adam, what uh, what's your concern? What's number one on your list this year? Well, it's not concern, but I I can see that um, Mr. Scheer made a huge error, and they're going to be able to beat his brains in with it. Um, and that's his support of Brexit, because that's support of separatism. And how you how is he going to argue that those separatists in Alberta and those separatists in Quebec are wrong if he's supporting a separatist government in Britain? Ah, I see. Now, Catherine Swift was talking about national unity and how the economy in this election was going to be critical to national unity going forward. But very interesting, this whole notion of supporting Brexit would indicate a a, a support to some degree of the notion of separatism. Hadn't crossed my mind before, Adam. That's that's a very interesting perspective. Thanks for the call. Keith, what do you make of that? I think that's a bit of a stretch. (laughs) I think uh, I don't see Andrew Scheer having any uh, separatist tendencies or even a himself with those. Brexit's an issue that is 
is uh, right now confined to Britain. It's going to have an enormous impact, of course, on trade and, and the economy in Europe, which will trickle out to other places such as Canada. But I'm not sure that issue is going to emerge as a talking point, uh, a consistent talking point in the campaign. I don't think the Liberals are going to really talking much about that, trying to tie Shear to Brexit. I think they're more interested in tying Andrew Shear to Doug Ford, because Ford is quite unpopular in Ontario. That's where the seats are. That will determine who forms government in this in this country, because it looks like the Liberals are going to win probably most of the seats in Quebec and take them away from the NDP, which is going nowhere. So right. the fight is around Greater Toronto and uh, the two area codes out there. And that's uh, where Shear has some problems because he is increasingly being seen as uh, another Doug Ford, and uh, Doug Ford is enormously unpopular. Interesting stuff. But uh, if there's anywhere that might gain some traction, this notion of Shear, the closet separatist, it might be in Quebec. It could, it could, but um, it, well, he does have to try to do something to, to sort of fashion a miracle in Quebec. The last Ipsos poll done for Global News has the Liberals with a 19-point lead over the Conservatives in Quebec, which is uh, very bad news for the Conservatives. So they do have to change the channel there, but I'm not sure separatism is the way to do it. Okay, finals question to you, Mr. Baldry, and we appreciate your time on a weekend. Uh, if there is that minority situation that is, is entirely possible, the two parties, both Fancying themselves to be the kingmakers, the Greens and the NDP, as you've identified already, um, the NDP making assumptions. Well, we're not going to support the Conservatives because they and they're already making claims to being that party. My money's on the Greens. I think they're going to steal a lot of votes from the Liberals. And like you, I don't think the NDP's going anywhere. No, I think the NDP is in a lot of trouble. I think the Greens are, are strong in parts of the country, in parts of the Maritime, and here in B.C., particularly where I am, on Vancouver Island, where there's seven seats. The Greens think they can win all seven. Mm. I'm not so sure about that, but I do think this is their best chance for gaining, uh, actually emerging with a, with a significant caucus of several seats rather than just one or two. But will they be in a position to support one of the other two parties? I'm not sure they're going to be that strong, but it could. You know, there's a scenario out there that maybe the NDP just implodes everybody goes green and becomes the green becomes the protest vote and that scenario is certainly possible uh, for, for occurring but uh, it's going to be a fascinating election certainly it's going to be a nasty one but I think nobody can predict what the key issue is and nobody can predict the outcome thanks Keith appreciate right. your time good to talk to you again we'll be we'll no doubt be doing this between now and election day too I hope so thank you Keith Baldry Global BC chief political reporter joining us from Victoria this afternoon Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.